giving us the high sign? Hi, I'm Walter Isaacson. Uh, Michael Mendenhall was supposed to do the introduction, but then he gave me his notes because I said there's somebody I've admired for my entire career in storytelling and journalism. And being at Time Magazine, we sometimes don't make as much of a distinction as we should. Uh, as Jeffrey Katzenberg, who I think we've put on the cover quite a few times, but a really wonderful cover when you started DreamWorks. And I decided to preempt Michael, who was supposed to introduce this session, so I could put my own special uh, thanks to the people here and to Matthew, of course. I do want to say that HP uh, has this wonderful thing in the Coke building. They've replaced all of our computers uh, with a uh, computer that won't be mentioned. And I said, you can do that as long as we get to keep some of these HPs, and they have. But more importantly, HP has long had a relationship with DreamWorks. I think it's always been one of your... Um, partners, and that's really important when it comes to 3D and digital storytelling. Uh, technology, as I watched it over the years, is really, really cool, but it's only a tool. And it's a tool in the hands of great storytellers. And nobody, nobody better than Jeffrey Katzenberg is a great storyteller, especially with the digital tools. So. Uh, what we're going to get today is a uh, wonderful talk about how to use the digital tools and 3D, which suddenly has sprung upon us in our new renovated Pepco Auditorium. We now have a 3D screen suddenly, which is um, something we didn't have before. And we've all seen a couple of the movies so far this week that uh, DreamWorks has put out. And to interview him is Matthew Bishop. I really want everybody to check out uh, Matthew's book. Um, Matthew's been at The Economist, been the U.S. editor, been a friend of the Aspen Institute for a long time. And now that I've sold HP machines, DreamWorks movies, and Matthew's book, I turn it over to the panel. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Walter. And uh, in case you're unaware, I'm actually doing a talk about the book tomorrow morning and uh, <laughs> be in your program, so I'm, I'll keep, continue to plug. Um, Jeffrey, I mean, this is an extraordinary moment to have this conversation. You've had this enormously important role in the evolution of Hollywood over the last uh, two or three decades. And yet, it seems to be at a crossroads um, like never before. There's just so many questions affecting both um, movies, but also the, the much broader media industry in which both of us actually work. And I just wanted to start by asking how bullish you feel about the industry? How excited do you feel about the potential for this industry at this point in time? Um, well, uh, you know, I am the eternal optimist, so um, I, I do find the good in, in all of it. I think that the thing that um, I uh, feel uh, today is um, uh, this sort of mix of a high, high degree of excitement about uh, the sort of rate of change that things are, are happening. I'll talk a little bit about that. And at the same time, a, a great deal of anxiety because uh, I don't, for the first time I can think of in, in, in my uh, career, it's a little bit hard to see where it all lands beyond the immediate horizon meaning the next three or four or five years. There are so many breathtaking things that are sort of landing on our doorstep with 
uh, as I say, an incredible regularity to it now, each one of which is actually kind of mind-numbing in terms of what the implications of it are. So just to mention one, I can go on as many as you want, but just to give one little one that happened uh, uh, two weeks ago to me, a group of engineers came to our studio and they uh, demonstrated something called Y-Gig. Wi-Fi, I'm up to speed on here and doing okay. So why gig? And all I will do is to, without trying to get into either the science or the engineering, both of which are above my pay grade, they demonstrated to me how over the air, wirelessly, they were able to deliver Avatar in a high-def version in 11 seconds. Now, does that terrify you, or yeah. does that excite you? Well, both. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about today, all the stakeholders that exist in the sort of larger media, entertainment, storytelling landscape, there isn't one who isn't going to, in a meaningful way, uh, have their world challenged and or turned upside down uh, in the next five years. You can start at the top of the waterfall, if you will, of a movie theater. And uh, in terms of my little piece of the world, which is the movie universe, and sort of just catapult right on down there. And it doesn't matter whether it's a cable company or a telco, um, uh, the internet. I mean, all of these things are uh, in for breathtaking changes. And so to me, that's exciting because with that, it's going to come big opportunities, also obviously going to be big disappointments. Um, to be sort of on the right side, make the right bets, be on the cutting edge of it, I think are just huge, huge, huge reinventions of the enterprise in it. Now, so, we've, been, we've been talking about this kind of coming together of the different media and, and the technology change and how, how that shakes everything up for about, what, 10 or 15 years at least. Are we now starting to see what the winners and losers are going to be, who the, who the, which business models are going to work, or is no. it still too early for that? No. I mean, because I think, uh, you know, as we sit here right now, you, you really can, can, for the first time, see with huge momentum how uh, quickly in, in the next few years the opportunity to have pretty much what you want, when you want it, and at different uh, price values is going to be a part of our world. And so the idea of sort of linear programming of you turn on something at 8 o'clock, a channel, a network, and something, and you know live through the night, those days are finished. I mean, it's going to be UTV. You know, it's not, it's it, it, each, each person, um, and that's what, you know, that's what the iPad represents in a way, is in another part of this world is uh, something that is completely, totally uh, uh, sort of reconstitutes uh, the idea of what is it, what does a device do? Um, and suddenly, um, it's in total service of me rather than I'm beholden to it. So how does, how does the iPad, for example, change the game for you? Well, um, 
not 100% sure uh, specific to movies, but to sort of articulate what I think it does for the world at large, I think it probably, and it's, it's not just the iPad per se, I think you have to, it's the, it's the tablet. And there are many competing versions, you know, uh, that are coming. And I and have some to say- Some are less controlled than Steve Well, Jobs including, I mean, I have to say to our partners at HP, actually, they will uh, pretty shortly lob in with their version. And, you know, that's where, um, uh, you know, the purchase they just made of Palm is going to be kind of uh, exciting in terms of that OS system on a, uh, a tablet is actually going to be very competitive, more competitive than anything anybody else is doing right now. So just let's talk about it as the tablet uh, itself. And what it does is, first of all, it's utterly intuitive. It's designed around how we are wired. You know, you, you literally can go back to Stone Age. We like to point things. You know, this is bigger, this is smaller, this is... It's as simple as that. I watched two four-year-olds about two, three weeks ago. I put one of these in front of them. We had four apps on it, and uh, uh, one was for uh, finger painting, one was for uh, coloring in. Uh, there was a read-along where you, you actually... Uh, a, a character reads along with the story, and there was a sing-along. And these two kids, telling them nothing, just put the down in front of them with four apps on it, were enraptured with this for hours. And so what, what, what that said to me is, is that, okay, well, here is what may be the most powerful, engaging, educational tool we've ever seen. You know, one of those in the hands of every child changes what it, how we educate our next generation in a way that, you know, is, was, was, is unimaginable. So the next, so for, intuitive, utterly intuitive, and everybody who has any phobias about devices, which we all do, me included, big time in this in it, they all go away with this. Uh, the second thing about it, as a viewing experience, as a personal viewing experience, the size and quality of that screen is actually amazingly perfect. And I'm saying that to, you, to somebody who spends hundreds of millions of dollars making something. As a personal way of viewing that in it, it's, it is a first-rate experience. And then the third, which is the most important part about it, is, is that every single thing on that device is completely about you. It's, it, it is designed by you, for you, for what you want, to serve you in the ways that support your lifestyle. So. Literally, whether it's the, an interest that you have in, in music or science or literature or art or you're traveling and you want help with language or currency or weather or someplace, to sh anything you can imagine, the world of apps is about serving my wants and my needs. And in a way that no device has ever done before, that's what that platform represents. And so you will have your, you know, your tablet, and your tablet is, will be as, as personal to you as your fingerprint is. Nobody else's will be like yours in it. And as you change and as your interests change, you'll keep adapting it to you. So those four-year-olds, that's where they'll start with it. And it literally will be a partner in life uh, for them. And I, I just think it's the most exciting 
piece of hardware to, 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 to come along. So as you look at this hardware from the perspective of your, your company and your strategy over the next few years, you know, what does it change? I mean, clearly it means, you know, with Y gig that you, people can download movies another, in 11 seconds, but what else yeah, It's just another it great do? platform. You know, the thing about it is, is that with all the diversions people talk about today, you know, video gaming has blown up into a $30 billion industry and, you know, the time that people are spending on the internet today and YouTube and, you know, there are so many choices of so many opportunities for things that in their own way are as engaging, yet movies are more ubiquitous today than ever before. They're seen by more people in more ways, um, you know, throughout the world. And, and, you know, so, you know, I feel that's where my hope comes and my optimism comes is, is that each one of these actually represents another, uh, another way for us to be able to put, you know, our product, our stories into the hands of, you know, um, uh, people that love them. Now, we're supposed to be talking about 3D and, and its impact on storytelling, but we're, we're not going to be too constrained by that. But for the, I wanted to, first of all, just get your quick explanation as to why you became uh, such a convert to, to 3D, because you, you were a, you well, know, a hardcore you know, 2D man for many years. <laughs> well, it's actually just, uh, you know, I went into a movie theater, uh, now it's almost, almost six years ago, uh, and saw at an IMAX 3D screen in Los Angeles, uh, Polar Express, a movie that Bob Zemeckis made. And it was the first film that used this next generation or new generation of digital tools in both authoring a film as well as in exhibiting a film. And the combination of those things together made that movie experience to me literally one of the most physically, visually exhilarating things that I had felt in a movie theater. And I'm not even commenting on, you know, the storytelling itself in it, which I, I actually quite liked, but the, the use of this technique just was so exciting to me. And I came out of that feeling like, well, we have now been through 10 years where the home experience of watching uh, uh, television had gone through this extraordinary rate of innovation and in where uh, every aspect of it had gone through what was a, a not an evolutionary but a revolutionary change in the big flat screen televisions, high def um, uh, uh, stereo sound in it, and suddenly watching you know in your own home uh, the, the experience had just gone through the roof. Meanwhile, the movie theater experience had actually you know, kind of stayed constant during that period of time. And so to me, and, and actually fewer and fewer people were going to the movies. And so to me, this represented a, a very uh, singular and unique opportunity to raise the bar above what you could do in your home, to deliver something that was a premium experience, that was a special uh, uh, way in which you can, you know, really be immersed in our stories and our storytelling uh, and would be a, a, a really a, a great new opportunity for the movie theater business, which was atrophying. And now you've committed to making every movie in 3D. Yes. Um, I mean, I suppose my question, and you've actually talked about this publicly, is that um, you know, this does feel like a gamble. I mean, it, it could go two ways. We could 
you could see this yeah. transforming the whole industry, but equally, I don't it think could so. be a bit gimmicky. Yeah. No, I don't think, it depends. Listen, like anything you know, new that comes along, there are, there are people that are embracing this and using it in support of great story and great storytelling and, and are using these tools um, in, in trying to create a, a singular and unique experience for, um, uh, uh, you know, for, for our audience. Uh, Jim Cameron really is the guy that, you know, Walter talking too nice about this, Jim Cameron is really the guy who has set the bar and pioneered the path in this. And, you know, to have, to have experienced Avatar in 3D in a movie theater, there's a reason why it is by two and a half times or two times the biggest movie in the history of the movie business in it. Well, can I, uh, let me you challenge you a bit on that. I mean, sure. I, I went to it, and I, I, I enjoyed you're it. You're the one that didn't like I it. I enjoyed it, oh, and okay. I enjoyed it. I got my money's worth. I, but I, I did feel like putting on a pair of glasses, it was fun once or twice, but I, would I want to do that every time I went to a movie? And then the plot was absolutely awful. And the last 25 minutes of it, I, was, I found it absolutely laughable. And I guess it is still fundamentally... Um, the challenge is to actually produce good stories, which I guess is something that you're, you're saying, obviously, DreamWorks has well, a great tradition of doing. Me but and about 700 million other human beings just don't quite agree with you about how busy his <laughs> storytelling was. But I'm used to that. We're still a minority. Funny. There are 5.3 billion other people mm. on the planet that could disagree mm. with us in it, so mm. I guess that's okay. But, you know, uh, again, you know, yes, it's, you know, if it's just a gimmick, if it's just a trick, um, it, will, it will come and go. I don't believe that about it. You know, go to the most basic thing, which is what every great storyteller hopefully sets out to do is to capture not only the imagination of an audience, but uh, just as importantly, emotionally engage an audience. That's what they're doing. And they, in the past, have had uh, pictures and sound as the tools to actually do that. Julia Roberts is running down the street and somebody's chasing her with a, you know, with a hatchet and you actually fear for her, fearing for her life, watching that. And that's an extraordinary thing where you actually suspend your disbelief and you become in the shoes of your protagonist or whatever it is in the story. That's good story, great storytelling, that is you know, Toy Story is out there right now, and you just, all of us get caught up in how emotional it is and how it, it, it touches us. Well, that's what great storytelling does. To be able to now go to this next dimension and to immerse our audience into that, it amplifies everything. It amplifies the feelings. It amplifies the emotions of it. That's what creating that extra dimension is. And... It is how we all see. It's how we're looking and watching and observing in this room. And as you walk from here back to your, you know, to, to the rooms, that's how we are taking information and data in, and it impacts and affects us emotionally. So in the same way that when sound came along uh, uh, 80 years ago, color came along 70 years ago in this, they, they were considered tricks and gimmicks at the time. All the same debate went on. You know, 3D is about 18 months old. It's at the beginning of the beginning. There are some people that are jumping on sort of a low-rider, cheesy use of the tool, and that's sort of all taken a little bit of the heat off of the 
uh, experience for people. You know, the consumer is, you know, uh, uh, very smart and very well informed and will know how to make the choices between a good version of it and a bad version of it. And, you know, I think it is, you know, I think it's going to be with us in every facet of our life. I think if you look out, you know, 10, 15 years from now, there's nothing that you will look at in terms of video imaging that is not going to have uh, 3D be a part of it. Nothing. A billboard. Billboards will be 3D. So how, how long before we can look at these images without having to put on a special pair of glasses? Well, you can right now. Um, you know, there'll be handheld devices that'll be out this year in the fourth quarter. You're starting to hear about, uh, uh, you know, uh, video gaming and uh, their beautiful, beautiful television uh, monitors uh, that are already begun to come to market, uh, that are coming to market uh, in the fourth quarter of this year. And they actually uh, are with glasses. They are active uh, 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 monitors in this. Um, it will probably take the next generation, which means six to eight years out, before you can see a 50, 60, 70-inch image with auto stereo, which is stereo without glasses. Um, It'll be 15, 20 years before that happens in a movie theater or on your billboard. And that's because of the difficulty of you have to be sat in the right place in order to, yes. to see it. And, and I guess if you've got multiple people, it's And quite... also, you know, being able, being able to actually create enough data there, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a tight enough image to do it. And so on a smaller handheld device, um, you know, where you have a single field of vision, you actually can create that um, 3D imaging. So what do you see as the biggest challenge in, in going from this novelty to, to something that's going to be fundamentally driving new product development and so forth in the sadly, industry? Sadly, yeah. quality. <laughs> that's the barrier to it, which is if the experience is... I mean, we found just... We, it's so interesting is not only is it in the quality of, the, of how the technology is used but it is also actually how uh, in the DNA of the story itself it, it, it feels uh, natural and amplified. So we've had two experiences. One was a movie called How to Train Your Dragon, uh, and the other was Shrek, both of which, in terms of the 3D itself, were super high-end, as, as high a quality as you can do, except in the DNA of the storytelling itself of dragons, which is a boy who gets on the back of a dragon and flies, it was exhilarating and was immersive. And when Shrek came along, it was nice, but it didn't raise the bar in the same way. We learned a great lesson from that, which is just going to that next round of creating dimensionality of the world and immersion in the world. Actually, the audience wants more, and we have to do a better job uh, of it, and I think we will in the next round of movies we make. And do you think that the equipment manufacturers are now convinced that the quality products are going to be available to, the quality content is going to be available to actually justify the sort of investment they need to make in developing well, the sorts the, of technologies yeah, you're talking about? For the movie theaters, for sure, and that's accelerated you know, pretty rapidly. Um, I think the you know, next is into the home. And you know, the home uh, 3D viewing, which we already you know, are starting to see is going to be driven uh, by sports and by video gaming. And those are the two places that, you know, are really, 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 um, uh, uh, you know, instantly can deliver 
a pretty sensational experience and enough volume to justify making the investment in you know, buying a new TV monitor for $1,500, $2,000. And soccer, I think, I mean, having seen a couple of examples of soccer in 3D, I mean, it does completely change your experience. Of, well, the most interesting the thing game. for me, I'm not a golfer, um, mm. but, you know, from time to time, they're great golfing tournaments, and, you know, you, you, you turn on. And I'm always amazed, because I'm not a golfer, about, you know, how, how there's, like, the, you know, the, the flag is over here, and the guy puts the ball over here, and I'm always going like, what's that about? You know, why is he putting that way? And it sort of runs and goes like And then you watch it on 3D, and all of a sudden you can actually see the contours. And so some friends of mine who are golfers who saw uh, the, um, uh, the championship back east in uh, Georgia, uh, the Masters, Masters. Yeah. sorry, mm-hmm. Masters tournament, forgive me, please. The <laughs> Masters tournament... Uh, uh, Sin, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the Masters, which was broadcast in 3D, I mean, they were like, it was like the greatest thing they'd ever seen on television before. They were ecstatic about it. And, and so, yes, there are things. I'm not sure what it does for bocce, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or uh, what was the uh, Olympic one where the you, curl, curling? I don't know whether it's going to be thrilling the on the there. curling side of it. But, uh, but it's great for sports. And anybody who's into any kind of video gameplay, uh, I saw a demonstration done of um, uh, OLED. Uh, OLED is, um, uh, is the next generation coming in terms of uh, uh, television monitor technology. And... Uh, uh, Sony and Samsung have each come out with OLED uh, TV monitors and in which you actually get true blacks in it. And it's, it, it, once again, the difference between LED and OLED is like here and the moon. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Um, they have not yet managed to be able to make those in large sizes yet, so they're still in very small sizes. But I saw a OLED monitor on a PlayStation with a Blu-ray uh, uh, a video game that had been designed for 3D. And I, I, I have to say, it was, again, that same feeling I had when I went to see Polar Express. It just was so startlingly different and cool and exciting. And so from a gaming, you know, someone who's into the gaming platform, it's just going to be, I think, sensational. And do you think it's going to continue to be delivered through sort of an Xbox or a, a Nintendo Wii or something? Or, is it, or are we going to see a completely uh, different approach to, to games um, and how they're delivered to, to, to users? Well, again, you know, it's, just, it's, it's now starting to find many different, uh, you know, versions of it. The, the, sort of the biggest impact right now is casual gaming is, is sort of on fire. Um, and but that's pretty uh, low-tech in some ways. It is low-tech, but... But, but, you know, rewarding, and people are as engaged with that, and, you know, you, 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 know, you look at uh, Zynga, uh, you know, and their business and how explosive it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how that all sorts itself out, but between that and then Persistent Worlds, uh, so like World of Warcraft, you know, there are 15 million people paying more than $15 a month uh, on World Do you of play War- games at all? Or? Uh, s- sort of 
spasmatically, I mm -hmm. guess would be the word. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm not very good at it, so I don't do it like in front of anybody that would <laughs> be able to talk about how bad I am at it because it's pretty tragic. <laughs> casual gaming is easier for me. I'm, I'm casual gaming. I don't look so stupid. <laughs> I know the feeling. Uh, I, I think, I think the games thing is something that just came in. No, no. So I, I, I love standing yeah. behind these guys. You know, like I talked about how mm. amazing that and immersive that experience was on OLED and all of that. Let me be really clear. I wasn't driving. I was watching behind somebody mm. that was actually mm. racing through a racetrack, and it was pretty <laughs> extraordinary. Now, can I ask you a bit about the, the business model and your thinking about you know, what role a studio plays in this modern uh, industry that, that's changed so much? I mean, even when you started DreamWorks, you've got a very different company now to what you set out to do then. And, that, and that, does that reflect the changing landscape that you're operating in? Um, well, lots of different, those are a lot of different questions there. You know, I think that uh, you know, the role of a studio has changed and is going to you know, continue to change. Uh, that's not to say that it's going to become less valuable. Um, the resources that it takes uh, to uh, make movies today, given the demands of technology and complexity and, and then the ability to uh, uh, bring those movies across many, many platforms around the world, it takes huge infrastructure to do it. Um, and, you know, I guess the most interesting thing that I look back on now is I remember, you know, it's got to be a good 10, 15 years ago when uh, digital handheld cameras first sort of, you know, came into the world and became ubiquitous, that you could go into virtually any Best Buy and for $1,500 buy a pretty high-end digital camera. And you would think the promise of that is that there would be many, many, many great entrepreneurial storytellers out there in the world that would figure out how to take that and make great movies out of it. You know, and I'll shock everybody when the last, how many years ago do you all think Blair Witch came along? Remember Blair Witch was this, you know, literally homemade little $300,000 movie that went out and did $150 million and are you, are you getting your Google, no, just, you, uh, are you Googling that right I now? Am, what was that? Yeah, what year yeah, was so that? So <laughs> it's about 12 or 15 years ago in this, and, and literally until paranormal activity a year ago, there's been nothing. I mean, it's, you, sometimes you know, we have these notions that, that, that you know, the commoditizing and you know, sort of uh, democratizing of these things is somehow or another going to you know, a whole new system of artist and talent is going to rise up with it, and it seems like it has that great promise, and then, you know, you scratch your head and you go, well, why not? So I'm not sure, you know, whether, you know, the ability that right now we are like this close away from virtually anybody in this room being able to uh, have complete and total access on a worldwide basis to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people instantly with no barriers to that. And so you would think if you had something good or cool that you'd be able to, you know, that, that there would be people out there that would find a way to, to, to get value out of it. And I'm sure there are, um, but I'm so not sure. So are you, are you agnostic, really, about how the different distribution 
channels for content actually evolve over the next well, few years? Well, we are for us. For DreamWorks Animation, we've tried to be as opportunistic about it as we can. Owning that kind of distribution uh, uh, infrastructure at a time in which it is so changing so rapidly seems not to be a great you know, place to invest capital today or people or even our own, our own energies. And so we tend to rely on you know, people that have expertise, that have infrastructure, and we rent it or we borrow it. Um, so but there certainly have been periods where you know, content hasn't been king, that having you know, a lock on particular distribution channels has been uh, very yeah, important. To, not today, though. You Honestly, really think that those, those days are yeah, over? I do. I think, you know, I think today you know, uh, there's access. There's a hunger for product, and if people have great product, great content, um, you, know, you can... You know, there is access. Um, as you think about the future, as you say, it's very hard, perhaps harder than ever, to, to imagine what it will be like. But do you have a, a, a sort of working model of what the movie theatre will be like in five or ten years' time, or, or watching television at home will be like? Uh, I'll give you the movie theatre, mm -hmm. one, um, because, again, I think I've seen a couple of examples of where it's headed. So the first thing, i just like to put a question back to the audience here with a show of hands, which is, um, if you uh, can tell me as a regular way of going to the movies, is eating part of either before you went to the movie or after the movie, you know, most times is that uh, are those two things joined together? So going to the movie and eating, put your hands up. Right, okay, so just it, it's all of us. So now, the next thing that will happen, because the one thing none of us have as much of as we want is time, is those two things are going to converge. And so I'll give you two examples that exist right now today. One is the most breathtaking beautiful, uh, high-end theater experience that you could imagine. And it's at a place called the Gold Class Cinema in Pasadena uh, in uh, California. There's a version in Seattle. And they started, actually, in uh, Australia. And you cannot imagine, just pick whatever the most beautiful, you know, uh, uh, you know, Peninsula Hotel or Four Seasons Hotel or whatever, you know, in terms of the quality of the, the environment and the textures and the textiles and the seats are unbelievable. I mean, it's just genuinely done with such a high degree of quality and taste. The theaters themselves seat from 24 to 60 people. Um, uh, every seat is, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, they're like lounges, and, you know, to me, I, I, I can't sit in it because it makes me go to sleep, unless the movie's Avatar, then I don't go to sleep. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 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 and part of that is a high-end dining experience, literally designer quality, high-quality food, uh, you know, sushi, whatever, and, 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 and service, waiter service in the movie theater. And it's done, and the theater is designed in a way in which nobody's sight lines are blocked, you know, because waiters going in and out, the, the seating and the way they're able to get access to people. In this. And so they've literally combined together. You come in, there's a beautiful, beautiful uh, bar, waiting area, cocktail area, and then, you know, you come in, you give your order, 
and you're served and you watch a movie. And it, by the way, you cannot get a seat in this theater. Cannot, there's six screens there. It doesn't matter what piece of crap is playing and it's, the experience is so extraordinary. You cannot get a seat in this, in this theater uh, any day of the week. It's, it's actually so what's amazing. changed in the economics of, well, of cinemas to make that well, a they're just model. They're now going and sort of pressing to a higher end experience. There is a much more accessible version of that that AMC, which is one of the big movie theater chains, has actually created uh, in Kansas City, in which they've taken an old complex, taken one wing of a 24-complex theater and gutted it and rebuilt it. And once again, you go in, you have to be over 21. You go in, there's a great kind of bar area. It's more, uh, you know, like TGIF-type table, you know, food in it. It's not as high-end in it. You can get service in the theaters themselves in it. And so it's really, and you're going out and you're, you're, you're having a meal and a movie together, and those experiences are being combined together into a package. And, and people clearly are paying a premium for it and valuing it. And so I actually think in the same way that sports migrated into a higher-end uh, uh, experience today than it was 10 or 15 years ago, that's where the movie theater experience is going to be. It is something genuinely unique and uh, different from what you can do in your own home. Now, what about in your own home? Because there's been this constant battle between, is it going to be the television that's going to be the device? Is it going to be the laptop? Is it going to now be the, the iPad? And who's going to control... Uh, I guess, the screen. You you are. And that is the answer to that. And I think all of these various companies right now, you are going to, you, the consumer, are going to be in control. In in a handful of years, you will pick what you want to see. You will, it will be, it it, it will be your network. And you will have, you will, it's no longer about, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's 9 o'clock on you know, Tuesday night. I have to be home to watch this show. I mean, who watches television that way anymore? I mean, it's literally generationally, you know, if you take the newer last two generations, meaning anybody under 20 years old, nobody watches TV that way uh, anymore. And so we're, you know, the, as that enterprise, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think flourishes, the notion of being able to uh, find what you want when you want. So it doesn't really, you know, what do we all care what the pipe is? I mean, that's, you know, as a content creator, I actually don't really care whether it comes through cable or Ygig or Ether. Whatever it is, just that I can get it to, you know, people that want it when they want it and for a fair value. You know, but again, I mean, one of the big battles over the last 10, 15 years has been over the browser on the laptop. And when we start plugging our you know, laptops into our television sets, and well, the tele- is there going to be a battle like Google versus know, cable vision or something to, the, to control the screen? And, and the, you know, the battle's over. The, you, you, if, you take, if you bought a television set in the last year, it's already built into it. So this even notion that you are having to plug something in to be able to give you browser access to it in it. It's, so you think that's, old, the end, are, that, that's, are, that's the end game already? They're, they're, it's a little bit of old school mm. uh, in this. And so, 
you know, it's interesting because you watch the large media companies today, you know, they got one foot in both camps. You know, you, you say, well, why is Comcast, you know, making this acquisition of NBC Universal? You know, because they already have extraordinary, extraordinary pipes and, you know, and, 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 and you know, the largest cable company in the world in this. Well, you know, I think they want to make sure that on the content side, of this, this is you know about sort of you know I think uh, uh, you know on that portfolio there of balancing that investment, making sure that they have a very very strong content bet on the other side of it. You know, uh, TV everywhere, uh, you know, is something that all of these uh, uh, you know uh, you know whether it's Time Warner or it's uh, Comcast, you know, trying to to to, to say look. We just want to bring uh, the, the, the content to you, and which of our devices or which of your devices and which pipe you get it through doesn't matter to us. Okay, well, I think I've been hogging all the questions, so I'm going to throw it open now. The mics will come to you, and we'll start with the gentleman in the middle. Um, and if you just say who you are when the mic gets to you. Well, wait, wait till it gets to you, because we're recording the question. It's on. Yeah. Okay, Mike Glosserman. Um, you talked about the Blair Witch to paranormal. Um, I'd like you to comment on the extent to which you think the new devices are going to disintermediate the um, distribution system that exists today. Because, in fact, um, more films than ever being made, it's that marketing budget that you know, most films don't have to get out on 1,500 screens. So um, to what extent do you think these new um, devices address that issue, the whole the distribution issue? Well, I, again, I'm not sure. Interestingly, um, you know, because of some of the challenge of the economics that have, you know, come plowing into Hollywood in the last few years, there's actually less movies being made today. If you go back in 2008, the major companies... Uh, 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 made and distributed uh, about 170 films. Um, uh, last year, uh, that was down to, in 2009, 148, and this year will be uh, under 130. So when you talk about impact across an industry, it's a pretty staggering uh, to go from 170 to under 130. And you think about the roll-on effect of that you know, to people that make their living in the industry of making movies, and it's pretty harsh. Um, and so you hear a lot about that uh, uh, today, of the readjustments that Hollywood is having to, to make. Um, I think that, you know, uh, there are different kinds of content, and as we now know, there's this amazing universe that is built up uh, around user-created content, YouTube. And, you know, here's where it's viral. And it's a community that starts to make these decisions, and it's a community that actually creates the awareness and the knowledge and the value. And so, yes, when you go back to sort of the old school world of get out into thousands of movie theaters, reliance on tens of millions of dollars of marketing, um, you know that's a that's a that's a bit of a closed world. And um, I don't not sure any of these things we're talking about change that universe a whole lot. But they do impact very much so, um, you know, what is sort of a whole new, you know, uh, ecosystem of, 
uh, content, a different kind of content, you know, um, that has become, you know, very, very, you know, powerful. You know, we're watching, you know, silly cats do silly things and, bunny, you know, babies talk in funny ways. And you know what? They're amusing and entertaining in their, and, and as valuable in their own way. Okay. Um, so there's a lady in the middle there. Could you, uh, Could you just how, say who you are as well? Oh, my name is Marianne Peoples. How is the technology for three-dimensional movies today different than the movies we saw in the 50s? And I remember seeing something at Epcot in the, I think, late 80s. Right. So how is the technology different that this is unique? So it's a, a number of different things have changed. Uh, uh, so I'll just start with the fact that on the creation side of it, um, uh, the ability to take two cameras and shoot an image uh, with perfect synchronicity at the same time was uh, imperfect until we came into the digital age in which through the precision of computers we are actually able to create a right eye left eye image that actually has absolute perfection to it and those imperfections that existed earlier is what created motion blur and eye strain and from time to time throwing up. And I, I have to say, as a, you know, I can only think of one business in the world in which um, the result of consuming that product makes you throw up succeeds. And that seems to be the beer and liquor industry. They, you know, you drink a lot, you throw up, get up the next day and do it again. I don't, I don't do it, but it seems to work, and even my kids seem to partake in this okay, silly habit question, here. The question right at the back. Right, so let the, me just give you a last thing. Yeah. In terms of what you see in the movie theater is the same thing, which is, is you have digital projection, which now has, instead of two separate analog projectors, you have one digital projector that delivers, once again, a very, very precise image. And the third part is those goofy red and blue clown glasses that we were all humiliated to actually wear and look at one another uh, wearing have now been replaced with reasonably cool polarized glasses. So all three things have changed. Sorry. Okay. okay. Uh, the name is Peggy Tauf, and here's my question. Um, one of the nicest things we do is we have a group of people, and on Sunday, we go to the movies, and then we go out to dinner afterwards, and we talk about the movie and have a great time. So the idea of turning the meal into the show um, isn't necessarily that appealing. But what the real question is, is that going to leave us? Are we no longer going to have that option? No, you're not precluded from doing that. You can go to the movie. You don't have to eat there. You don't have to order. You don't... No, but do you think that you have to be there at the time the movie starts and all of that that you were talking about before? No. You don't think that'll go away? No. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, we've got a man right at the back. Options, yeah. more options. Let's take a couple of questions. We've got the gentleman standing and the gentleman just in front. Do you have a set, Paul Bronston, do you have a sense about um, a 3D te uh, technology eventually being replaced by a hologram type of technology? Um, the answer is maybe, but I won't be here when it happens, so I'm not going to worry about it. So it's decades down the road, I think, before you see holography used in a way. Because you actually have to rebuild the, the physical environment in order to make that work. 
So literally the physical box that exists today in a movie theater doesn't work. So it's literally starting all the way back down to bricks and mortar. So that's a long way off, I think. Yes, sir. Uh, David Rabb. Um, truly, I understand the value of the dollar, but my question is quite basic. And it is, why when we assess some movie success, do we use the uh, box office proceeds instead of uh, revenues instead of the number of eyeballs by two or the number of butts in the seats so that you can compare from generation to generation without the inflation of the ticket price? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, some do that. You know, some countries in the world, for instance, France, it's always about admissions. Um, and uh, so the fluctuations of currency and inflation and all of those things, you know, you actually sort of see the difference of it. But uh, I don't know, the almighty dollar seems to be what people are most interested in. So I guess that's why they do it. Um, right at the front, yeah. Hi, Richard Long. Uh, I have a 10-year-old son who I, I, would, I think it's safe to say is your core demo. And so we see pretty much every G, PG, PG-13 movie that comes out. And uh, he's not so nuts for the 3D because he doesn't like the darkness from the glasses. Mm -hmm. But he's totally, I mean, he loves going to see everything and he, he likes all the experience. But he is pretty nuts for video gaming. And, you know, because I like to spend time with him, I spend a lot of time playing too. And you're seeing games that are being created now that have a level of acting, dialogue, writing, storytelling that just didn't exist three or four years ago. Like, you have some franchise properties like Shrek, which are fun games. I'm wondering, but then you have something like Batman Arkham Asylum that, you know, has, you know, was rated the best game of the year because it had that kind of storytelling in it. What are you or the other majors doing or, or to enter that sort of space on that level of immersive, interactive storytelling? Uh, so a bunch of different things here. So just on the first side of it, you know, um, uh, we offer our movies uh, uh, in 2D experience. You know, we don't, they're not exclusively in 3D, so no one's precluded from seeing the movie uh, uh, in 2D, and, and no one's forced to pay a premium price if they don't want to. These are options that we're giving to our, our customers. In terms of the gaming side of it, um, as much as I admire and kind of have fun with the game world, I know it's not a skill set or a talent that we have, so we actually rely on third parties. to. So we're partners with Activision and THQ. They are the companies that we go to. We make co-production licensing deals with them in which they actually adopt our games, adapt our games into the gaming world because they actually have very, very skilled expertise at it. Uh, just, uh, if I interrupt to ask a question, um, how far off are we from the day when we can get rid of actors altogether and just, <laughs> and just uh, you can make your movies with cartoons uh, that are so realistic that effectively they're like humans? Um, I, I don't, it's not of interest to me, so I don't, you know, when you ask about it from a, a technological standpoint, doing photorealism is something that is here available today. But the fact is, is that um, I, I, I believe actors, including in our animated movies in which you don't see their bodies, you only hear their voices, they are actually of the essence. And the difference between a great actor uh, 
and, and somebody who's just in there reading lines is night and day. And you know, you think about in particular our movies, because we've, a signature for DreamWorks Animation is to have the biggest comedy stars in the world in our movies. And I think it's one of the reasons why our movies have tended to play to a more adult audience, because going and seeing Ben Stiller or Chris Rock or uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld or whatever these actors are that we've been lucky enough to have in our is some of the fun of the movies. It doesn't, it's not a substitute for a great story, but it actually adds another dimension to it. But I'm struck that you've made comments in the past about how animation has a very different um, nature to it and that you can take much longer to make a movie, that you then have a much lower expectation of failure than I guess in the movie industry in general. And I wonder if that's to do with the fact that, well, as you say, you can take five years, you can retake it, retake it, retake it, whereas when you need the actors physically to be there, you have to get it done in a much shorter period of time. So well, in some ways, our, you, could, yeah. you could see how you could yeah. disintermediate the, it's not. We, the human we, actor we by keep, we, no, taking we, longer and having much less failure in your model. No, the actor is still as, you know, as essential to us as they always have been. Um, it does still take four or five years. We use the actors over that period of time uh, uh, in making the films. Fortunately, we only have to use them you know, maybe a dozen, 15 times over the course of that period, but um, uh, they, they add an absolutely essential ingredient. Here's an amazing uh, uh, statistic that I uh, came across uh, the other day that somebody pulled up for me. Because it is something, there is something unique about how we make these computer animated movies that is different from the rest of the movie business. And it is a reiterative process. So Pixar has made 11 movies now uh, in their 15 years. And all 11 movies have been hits, I mean, blockbuster hits. And they have grossed an average $240 million at the box office. Uh, DreamWorks uh, has been at a slightly sl shorter period of time. We've made 13 CG animated movies, and every single one of which has been uh, successful, and the average of those 13 movies has been $204 million at the box office. So you, here you have, between the two companies, 24 movies, and we've never missed. You know, we've had good movies, we've had very good movies, and once in a while we've had great movies. Um, but they've always been at least good. And that process of being able to take four years to work a story over and over and over again to get it to the point that it is from good to great, I think is singular and unique about animation. So we had a question in the middle there. Hi, Shelley Porges with the Department of State. Um, President Obama announced a couple of months ago um, the National Export Initiative, um, asking U.S. corporations to double the amount of exports in the next five years. Hollywood is already a major exporter. What do you see happening over the next five years in terms of American movies uh, and, and the gross revenues that that will generate overseas? Do you see a doubling, or what kind of changes do you see? Yeah, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous opportunity for us to continue. Uh, here's a just amazing thing. I just take Russia, uh, hardly a developing country, but nevertheless you know, new in terms of access in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, uh, five years ago, a successful, big, giant, giant, top 
three or four movie in Russia would for for us would be five or eight million dollars at the box office. Uh, we have just finished the release of Sh the most recent Shrek uh, in Russia, literally this last week, and the movie grossed fifty-one million dollars. Um, and so here is a market that has just been explosive for us. And by the way, I don't see you know that that stopping. Um, uh, we've seen the same thing happen now uh, in Asia and. Uh, you know, there are real trade barriers in China, so that's a real issue for all of us as to how we deal with the market. We are only licensed, we, the entire American movie industry uh, is given 21 licenses a year to release American product in China. That's it, of all the movies made, and they pick the 21. And, uh, and so both the, um, uh, uh, selecting process uh, as well as the economics of it are, uh, are so upside down that you know, many of the companies right now are actually just thinking, you know what, we should just stay out of the market until they're ready to open it up um, uh, you know, in a competitive way. Um, but India, we're seeing tremendous growth year over year over year. And so uh, I think the international markets have and will continue to be a big, big opportunity. We are a huge exporter. Uh, Two-thirds of DreamWorks Animation's business is done outside of the U.S. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, but I just want to uh, ask you to, to end by giving us a sense of what we should be watching out for from you. Um, you I hear you say that How to Train My Dragon is the best so far that you've done in terms of understanding the 3D technology, but what have we got over the next year or two, and are they going to be significantly better, and, and how, compared to what you've done already? Well, again, it's just, you know, it's our artists becoming, you know, more and more uh, familiar and skillful in terms of how to use the tools. Uh, just to answer your question, the next three releases from us, the first one is a movie called Megamind, which is a send-up of the superhero uh, uh, genre, uh, the way Shrek kind of sent up fairy tales, this does. It uh, stars uh, Will Farrell and Tina Fey, uh, Jonah Hill, and uh, Hollywood newcomer Brad Pitt. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, and I, I think it's pretty exciting in, a, in, in its own way. I think a, a, a very interesting and somewhat different tone of a movie for, for us. Uh, next year, we have the second chapter of Kung Fu Panda, and I would say the single number one question that I am asked almost every place that um, I, I, I go, I wasn't asked it here today, so I'll ask it and answer it, which is, uh, how is it possible that Poe's dad is a duck? <laughs> we will reveal the answer to that in the next chapter. Um, uh, and then, uh, actually, we've had a lot of fun taking uh, the character of Puss in Boots and going back and doing the, basically the creation story of Puss in Boots, how he became the legend before he came into the Shrek uh, world here. So we go back and we see him as um, uh, a kitten uh, in an orphanage and follow him. He meets up with Humpty Alexander Dumpty, played by Zach Galifianakis, who is his best friend, and uh, uh, Kitty, uh, played by Salma Hayek, and a whole funny, wonderful 
cast here. And uh, so the so Shrek that, franchise is, is evolving rather well, than it's ending. Not, is it that? really is because it honestly it actually has no reference in any fashion because it all takes place before he entered the Shrek stories in it. So other than your awareness of the character, the familiarity of it, it actually doesn't have a connection to, to Shrek in that regard. Well, I would love to go on talking for a long time, but thank you very much. Thank you.